All right, could we turn to Romans chapter 6? I hate to interrupt this fellowship, but I really do sometimes. It should let you just go for an hour. All right, Romans chapter 6. I'll never be able to top that prayer, Denny, so I'm going to just go right to the teaching. Okay. All right, we'll just have Denny's prayer Sunday morning cover tonight's prayer. Romans chapter 6, I mentioned to a couple of the sentinels outside that one of the titles for tonight's message might be Present Arms. And because we are, in fact, at the clash of the ages, the change or the juxtaposition, the passing away of the old age, as 1 John 2.8 says, The darkness is already passing away. The darkness is John's name for the passe age, the age that's passing away. And then the new aeon, the new age, as we would, I hate to use the term, but they stole it. The new aeon, which was introduced with the Christ event, is here, even now, but not as fully manifested and consummated as it will be. And so we're in the clash of the ages, and we're engaged very really in a war. Thinking of this on the 74th anniversary of D-Day, the invasion of Normandy by our troops, in which thousands of our young men died in one day. And you think about the concept of war, concept of wars and rumors of wars that preceded the destruction of Jerusalem. The greatest war being fought is the apocalyptic war now, and we're to be armed for it. So I've got Romans 6, and we're going to go starting at verse 1. We're building now a translation of Romans the epistle is coming into kind of a focus right now. I can kind of see the end of what might be a trans, well, a paraphrased translation. Romans chapter 6, my translation from the Greek text, as best as I can do it. What will we conclude then? Paul makes this, asks this question after coming to Romans 5, 20 and 21, where sin abounded because of the entrance of the law and the distortion of the law by sin. Sin abounded, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And this also reaches back, as we've seen, to Romans 3.8, the slanderous accusation against Paul's gospel that somehow it hands people a license to go on sinning with the unrealistic expectation that good will come from it or grace, more grace will be given. And so Paul asks in Romans 6.1, and really, he's doing what he said he was going to do in Philippians 1.7. He said he was appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The defense of it we're dealing with now, the confirmation of it in Romans also. He defends and confirms the gospel of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the senselessness of group biases in the light of that great redemption. So in verse 1, what shall we conclude then? Shall we persist in? This means to persevere in allegiance to sin. And sin here, as we've defined it before, and as Paul defines it, is a cosmic power, a cosmic supra-human power that we can't avoid enslavement to other than a greater power, grace, invading. What will we conclude then? Shall we persist in or persevere in allegiance to sin so that grace will abound? Certainly not. Paul always brushes away these kind of allegations with a famous word, me genoito in the Greek, and it's very strong negation. Of course not. Absolutely not. Definitely not and many other ways to say it. It's an emphatic negation. Certainly not. How can those who died to sin live any longer in it? 
Are you not aware that as many as were immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? This baptizo referred to here is ultimately the spirit introducing us into union with Christ in the act of regeneration. We were buried together with him through this aforementioned immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. I'm not going to comment on these. We've already translated this and continue. In verse 5, we, we have translated really all the way up through 8. But let's look at it to recap. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, and we have... So we will likewise be united with him in resurrection. For we know, and that word know is to know with strong assurance. In fact, with absolute confidence. We know with absolute confidence that our paleo man, that's the now obsolete person that we were in Adamic ontology, the now obsolete person who is worse for wear, by being under the controlling allegiance to sin. He's gone. She's gone. That paleo man or the obsolete person, the old self, was crucified together. And that's where we have our word sustarao, in which the cross appears in a verbal form, in a verbal complex word, S-U-S-T-A-U-R-O-O. The word S-T-A-U-R is the root word for stauras, and the root word for a word that will be more and more strongly brought forward in my teaching, instauration, which is a universal phenomenon. So we have again here in verse 5, or verse 6, for we know that our paleo man was crucified together with Christ, so that the body of sin, now here we have sin once again as embodied or personified as a power. The body of sin is sin embodied as a personified power. The body of sin would be rendered powerless, meaning powerless to control, powerless to control our allegiance any longer so that in turn we would no longer be enslaved to sin again sin as a power once again it is not obscure here but very clear that sin is unveiled here to be a cosmic personified suprahuman power that is stripped of its control of us by our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ you ought to know this, and this will lead you to present arms. So, verse 7, this is the verse that we hit on Sunday when I gave you the baby without the birth process. For the one who died is justified away from sin. And that one is Christ. We know from Romans 8.34 and from the commentary in 1 Timothy 3.16, now having died with Christ, verse 8, we believe the dying with Christ is our justification, not our believing, but our dying with Christ. We believe having died with him, or we have confidence that we will live with him. Now this must be interpreted, we will live with him must be interpreted in Gerhard Abeling's great motto, even now, but then completely. Even now, we are raised together with him into a new kind of livingness. And yet, in bodily resurrection, at the eschaton, the final moment of time, the end of this age, this evil age, we will live with him in immortality and incorruptibility in a new creation. 
So, verse 8, having died with Christ, we believe. Why do we believe? Because God gifted us with faith. Don't say that your faith is nothing. It's a priceless gift. We believe. So what separates you from the one who doesn't believe? Your faith. You have faith that you will live forever with Christ and that you are already begun that living. You have faith that there's a new creation that will mean God is all in all. You have a friend that doesn't have that faith. That puts you at a pretty good advantage, I think. Faith is a priceless gift. Makes life totally different than it would be without it, that's for sure. Verse 9, because we know, once again, oida. Oida is a very, very powerful verb. John uses it, Paul uses it, oida. O-I-D-A. It means, it's not like ginosko, which means a process of coming to know or understand. This means to know assuredly. Because we know assuredly that Christ, having been raised up from the dead, no longer dies. And this is what caused Paul to say in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two that in Christ all will be made alive never to die. Death no longer lords it over us. Another important word here, death no longer lords it over us. One of the few times when we can use lord as a verb, it's the Greek verb, K-U-R-I-E-U-O. Kurio, the Greek word for lord is kurios. And so we have literally lorded over us. Death, it says, no longer lords it over us. And so, notice verse 9 again. Because we know assuredly that Christ, having been raised up from the dead, that's he's the one who died and was justified, no longer dies. Death no longer lords it over him. Why no longer? Because once it did. He died for us, which means he put himself under the power of death and became sin. Raised from the dead, however, after that absolute, indescribably horrible death, raised by the glory of the Father, he dies no more. He's no longer subject to death. Death no longer lords it over him. Verse 10, in that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now we could say once for all that he did it once and for all time, but we could also say once and for all people. He died once for all people. But in that he lives, he lives to God. And here's my translation. I kind of woke up with this in my mind this morning. So bank on this. Bank on is a word that I, and I actually looked it up in the dictionary because I thought it was just a kind of a colloquialism. But the word is logizomai here. L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I in the Greek, logizomai. And it has the, it, it comes from a semantic domain that has to do with accounting, banking, finances, fiduciary things. So because of that, I translate this this way. So bank on the fact, rely totally on the fact that you, this is plural, you all, or as they say down south, I got to get prepped because we're going to have our southerners up here soon, y'all. Plural, y'all, so that you, you all, are dead to sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, that you, plural, are alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So most translations have in verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Why consider, and it's a pretty good translation, why consider, I like bank on the fact better, it's a phrasal 
verb. It means a verb that's formed by a phrase, two words, bank on. So the phrasal verb I like better, but consider works too. Why consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Why should you consider yourselves to be dead and alive to God? Because you are. It's a fact. That's a reality. It's a truth. It's a reality that is more real than what we call reality because we see it. So I opted to use the phrasal verb, that's P-H-R-A-S-A-L, phrasal verb, bank on, because to bank on something is to rely on it as an indisputable fact or as an undeniable truth. Moreover, logizomai, as it's used here, is used 27 times by Paul in his epistles. It's another crucial word for him. It's a catch word. It's, a, it's an important word. And outside of Paul, I think it's only used like four other times in the New Testament. So it's a Pauline word, logizomai, bank on it. And also in the Byzantine translation or the majority text, which sometimes really I need to look at because it's it's very often right, we have the phrase, our Lord, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I go with that translation because our Lord is curios, and so it goes with the phrase before, death no longer lords it over him, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He, in Romans fourteen nine, he both died and came alive from the dead that he might be Lord over the living and the dead. There's a new Lord in town. There's a new Lord, and it's not death anymore. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I like this accounting or fiduciary or banking terminology because Paul is very explicit about this in Colossians 3.3. He simply says, you died. Your life begins with an obit. The newness of living, the new livingness that we have in Christ Begins with your obituary. Doesn't end with your obituary like lives do now. And lately, the new trend in obituaries is to tell the bare truth about people. I don't know if you've seen any of those online. They're pretty ugly. It's like our mother died recently. She abandoned us when we were kids. She's a B.I., you know what, and therefore we're not going to miss her. Bing, that's the end of the... That's what people want to feel honest about things. I think it's ridiculous because we know that she's in the arms of the Lord no matter what she did in her living and life. But that's the new thing. But I just like this obituary. You died, and your life is hid with Christ in God, who is your life. Christ is your life. He's the one that died, and if he died for all, then all died. And he's the one that was justified. And if he was justified for all, then all are justified. So the answer to the question, God, will you save all mankind, is no, I already have. In fact, in the tenses of Yahweh, I am that I am, he has, he does, he will. He has saved all mankind. He does save all mankind. He is saving us moment by moment in, through the word and the spirit. He will save all creation. He is Yahweh. He covers all tenses. I have saved. I am saving. I will save all things. God is the God who saves. And so you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. So you can bank on it, can't you? Can you bank on it? Can you rely on that as a reality? Or do you not believe? God has given me faith to believe it. If you believe it, God has given you faith to believe it. Don't say your faith is nothing. It's not a mere instrumentality. It isn't the instrumentality for your justification. And so, our Lord seems appropriate here because the word kyrio was used in the previous verse for what death does as a regnant or reigning power that once lorded it over even Jesus. Jesus could only be freed from death because he was subjected to death by his own decision, by his own will, by his own obedience 
to the Father to the extent of death. And so he defeats death, which ruled over us, by submitting to a death on Calvary and rising from the dead. When he arose from the dead, so did you. When he arose from the dead, so did all of the creation that required rectification. The church, as it's defined now, is merely the scene of the ongoing setting right of things that God is going to do to all creation. And that's what Romans 6 is about. So, now death no longer rules over Jesus and will never again do so. I have the keys of death and of Hades, he says. And, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, hey, death, where is your staying? Hey, grave, where is your holding power? So, Jesus Christ both died and came alive from the dead to be Lord over the living and the dead in Romans 14, 9. That's why we can indeed say that our justification, our justification is a liberation from the controlling power of sin. And it's an ongoing process that goes on in the church, in the community, in the individual and in the community. So this is why we can indeed say that our justification is a liberation from the controlling power of sin and death and at the same time a transference to the kingdom where God's beloved son is Lord. And king of kings. Justification is indeed then a liberation. An act of liberation performed by God. And it's a change of controlling allegiance. Because once we were under the enslaving control of sin and death. Now we have been liberated, emancipated we could say, to be under our liberator. And we're commanded to stand firm in the freedom for which Christ made us free. Christ is our liberator, and he requires us to be free, to stand fast and firm in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free, and to no longer be entangled again with the yoke of slavery or enslavement, enslavement to sin through the law, for example, or enslavement to sin without the law, or enslavement to death or the fear of death, no longer. Romans 6.12, therefore do not let sin, capital S-I-N, as a cosmic power, reign in your own mortal body. Please notice here that he says mortal body, and this is a positive thing, because we have this life and this livingness, which is a... Moltmannian term, I like his term, livingness, to God even now. We have it now. But in immortal bodies, when our deliverer comes from heaven to change our bodies. That's an instantaneous change. I'm waiting for it. I'm anticipating it. And I have two things that I want. I want to be with the Lord alone, with him alone. He's the one alone that I want to be with. But I also want to be with the Lord alone with all when he redeems all things. Because wherever you are in the new creation, you're with the Lord alone, but you're with everyone. You're with all in the Lord because God is all in all. There's nothing that is bad in the, in the new creation. And when it comes into its full fruition, it will be... It will reveal to us that any of our imaginings about it were pathetic, as I've said before. Because eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the ability of man to imagine. It has never come to that. And the things that God has prepared for those who love him, which is all of humankind. Therefore, we do not let sin, do not let sin. Now we're some imperatives here. Imperatives are coming. Why can Paul give an imperative when God does the saving, God does the regenerating, God does the immersing of us into Christ, salvation is of the Lord, nothing to do with us, God just catches up with us. 
and does it to us. Why then can he command us now? Because now our will is liberated. Now we have a liberated will. Our will before was enslaved to sin, and there was no option. But now he has liberated our will, and the apostle has the right to make imperatives or we could say commandments and also exhortations to us because we have a liberated will. So why is there reward for some and not for others? Simply because after we are regenerated by an act of God, we have a liberated will. And what we do in our liberated will in in presenting ourselves in total availability to God results in things that glorify God. Or if we refuse with our liberated will and we go back under the enslaving, bankrupted and weakened elements like death and sin again, well, we're not, we could say, racking up rewards. Rewards only make sense as actions performed by God through the liberated will of his people. That's a doctrine. That's the baby being born. We have to put some clothes on him now, but that'll be later. Do not let sin reign. That's become regnant, royally reigning in your mortal body, so that you obey its desires. Now, rectification, a better word than justification, is a setting right of what is wrong. God does it. Rectification is a process. It's not an instantaneous imputation of righteousness. I was asked recently, should we believe in rebound anymore? And I said, rebound is a genuine doctrine, but it's not a preoccupation. Don't make it a preoccupation. If you sin and get off course, it's up to God to pull you up short, not you in your introversion in trying to see whether you sinned or not. I was also asked recently, and it was pretty good because it was sort of argumentative. A friend of mine, Dr. Timothy Tealeaf, I'll call him for now, which isn't his real name, but he'll get a kick out of it. He said, I disagree with you. You said that we can only know that we were sinners once we're in Christ and look back. And I, I said to him, you're right. We do know we're sinners because the law makes us aware of sin. But we only know, I said, the magnitude of what it meant to be under the control of sin so totally once we are in Christ. We only then see the magnitude of it. So he was right. I should have corrected that when I say, We can't even know we're sinners until we're in Christ. We know we're sinners because the law says do not steal. And so we steal and we say, wow, I'm a sinner. But we don't know the magnitude of what what it means to be under the power of sin as a cosmic suprahuman power until we're in Christ and see what he's freed us from. So that's clarified. Dr. Timothy Tealeaf, I have clarified it, my oldest congregant. He likes to say so rectification is a process that's ongoing in our mortal bodies and in the community that we call ecclesia, the church. Now our will is liberated. It wasn't before God invaded our will. He invaded our enslaved will to free it. So once We could not help letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. Couldn't help it. Now we are free to not let sin reign. To not let sin reign. My sister Becky sent me a, every once in a while I get a kick out of it because she sends me funny things. It was a t-shirt and it said on it, A fun thing to do in the morning is not talk to me. And I thought, that's, wow, that's a doctrine. But this is what it means here. A fun thing to do now is not let sin reign in your mortal body. You know, he he doesn't command that if that's not available to us to do. We do not permit. Of course, we don't do it ourselves. There's an advent of someone coming into Romans pretty soon. Romans 8, 1 to 27. The Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, the advent of the Spirit. He came into the world because he was sent by the Father and the Son, as the Son came into the world as he was sent by the Father. But he also has an advent into your life at the sovereign choosing of God. The timing is up to God. When he invaded my life and my will in 1972, it was not a time of my choosing at all. It was not a time of my choosing. It will not be a time of my choosing when I die and go to be with the Lord, when something ends this course that I've been on since 1951. That's God's sovereign choice. He chooses the time, chooses the manner, he chooses the place, he chooses the length of the death-shadowed valley when we know we're dying. He lose, chooses it all. But he chose the time to invade my will as he chose the time to invade yours and to effect regeneration. God did it to you. It's his sovereign choice. The advent of the Spirit into your life, my life, the advent of the Spirit into your hearts, my heart, to pour out the love of God in our hearts. This is where the power of sin stops. Sin reigning in our mortal bodies is otherwise called the flesh by Paul. Here's another important distinction. The flesh. Capitalize the flesh. The flesh where it lusts against the spirit or has desires in opposition to the spirit and the spirit has desires in opposition to the flesh. And Romans make that Galatians 5.17. Romans has to be interpreted often in the light of Galatians. Galatians is not interpreted in the light of Romans. Romans is often interpreted in the light of Galatians, which was written years before Romans. So there's a mistake that people make when they try to calm down and domesticate Paul's radicality in Galatians by trying to impose Romans on it. You can't do it. Paul was radical in Galatians, so much so that I kind of feel tempted to teach on it. But that word flesh there is another one of the, the powers. It's a superhuman power called the flesh. And so what about what is sin and what is flesh? What's the difference between sin as a power and the flesh as a power? It's simply this. The power of sin, when it becomes residential in the individual, is called the flesh. So Paul takes this terminology up in Romans 8 as he's already done so in Galatians 5. Once we obeyed sin, what's Paul's whole job? To preach the gospel and to bring about obedience, the obedience of faith on all the nations in Romans 1.5. Once, he says, we were obedient to sin as our regnant power, as our king. Now we have been brought to the obedience of faith, but this does not mean that we have the ability to do this of ourselves, to just say no to sin. The Spirit makes his advent into Romans, in Romans 8, 127. As he made his advent into the world, sent by the Father and the Son, and as he makes the advent into our lives, he makes a rushing mighty wind advent into our lives and our hearts at God's own sovereign choosing and in God's own sovereign time. To walk in the new, new livingness is what I've translate Romans 6, 4. To walk in the new livingness the newness of life, a new kind of livingness. It's not morality and ethics as people understand it. It's way beyond that. In fact, to reduce it to what we call Christian ethics is a total, I want to say blasphemy, it's almost blasphemy against the gospel. This isn't ethics. It's not morality. It's something far, far greater. It's the manifestation of Jesus in our mortal bodies is what it is. In 2 Corinthians 4.10. 
So we present arms. So to walk in the new livingness that we have risen to out of death in Christ Jesus is the same as to walk in the spirit, as Romans 8, 4 says. And that means not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. So a fun thing to do in the morning and in noontime and at night is not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Now, the desires of the flesh are often, we list them, well, it's sexual, it's sensual, or it's this or it's that. But in Romans, Paul's dealing primarily with the desire of the flesh, which desires preeminence over one's fellow peoples, over one's fellows, preeminence, dominance, comparing oneself with oneself, coming out on the good end of the stick because you are under the law as a Jewish Christian and they are still pagans liable to the wrath of God. Or no, we are the Gentile Christians that were swept in by God's grace and they have been rejected because they're part of the Israel after the flesh. None of that stuff, all of that stuff, I'll say, belongs to the old passe age. In fact, what belongs to the old cosmos, the old age, the old aeon, are pairs of opposites that are no longer pairs of opposites, neither male nor female. What do we have now? Gender wars to the point where there's new practitioners of witchcraft and where you have people saying, she's a witch, and I don't mean the good kind, which suggests that there's a good kind. There is the move to castrate the male and to call all masculinity toxic. There is a terrible and dangerous gender war because of the old age there is the male versus female thing. There is the Jew versus Greek. There's the social low class, we call it, upper class, low class, middle class, slave or free, all of that. Those are all antinomies of the old cosmos. Those are the old pairings opposing pairings that are gone now. And yet they're accentuated in our time, which signals to me the end of freedom in the United States of America. Freedom, civil kind, like the freedom we used to call privacy, gone. And we see it. The generation coming up doesn't see it because they were born into the loss of freedom. They don't see it. We who have been free and seen civil freedom and seen it going down the tubes are the generation that has to warn about it. But it's too late. The only thing that's going to do anything for this nation is the gospel of Jesus Christ unchained that brings people to the end of these antinomies and these opposing pairs and opposites, racial, gender, divisiveness, that's tearing the fabric of this country apart. That's what's going on that matters while everything out here on the outside between Democrats and Republicans and who did what and what, who gave away the secrets of this and leaked this and none of that stuff means a single thing at all compared to what's really going on to destroy the fabric of our freedom. The freedom of the United States that you've known before is limited, and it's been, the end of it has been signaled already. Wake up. So, is there hope? I'm talking about it right now, yeah. It's in the gospel. So this is the apocalyptic war that we're fighting. That's the real war. To walk in the new livingness that we have risen to out of death in Christ is to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Romans 8, 4 compared to Galatians 5, 16. This is the apocalyptic war that we're fighting. You're conscripted into it, whether you know or not. The majority of Christians seem to be going AWOL, absent without leave. God didn't give us leave. I've often asked the Lord, will there be a time when I stop doing what I'm doing? And he says, when I give you leave. And sometimes that simply translates as 
physical death. We now enter a phase of Romans 6 which looks backward to the general motif of slavery in Romans 1.1. Paul, a slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. An imperial slave of the new reigning king. And it also looks forward to Romans 12.1. See, we're getting back and we're still in the pincer strategy. Romans 6 points back to Romans 1.1 but also forward to Romans 12.1. In Romans 12.1, the new person in Christ is urged based on the ever-renewable mercies of God. That phrase, mercies of God, comes from lamentations. The mercies of God are renewed every morning. The mercies of God are renewed every morning. The ever-renewable mercies of God, in Romans 12.1, to present... And here's the word I want to close with tonight. This has been, we've had to do some exegetical catch-up tonight. So we go from the really big things, the universe, down to the daily life of the church, the daily guts and mechanics of our thinking in this life. The word is paristemi, P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I, paristemi. And it's a key word here because let's say it's used... Two times in Romans 6.13. It's used one time in Romans 6.16. It's used two times in Romans 6.19. And then it's used monumentally, in a monumentally important way, in Romans 12.1. Therefore, present your bodies. Here, present your members, which is the sum total of the body, of which is the sum total of your members. But your members or your body, call it body parts, call it members, call it melee or soma, body parts, plural, or soma, singular. Even that is pars pro toto. When you're talking about presenting your body or presenting your body parts or your arms and your legs and your, all your members, you are still using a metaphor of pars pro toto. You're talking about your total being is being placed at the disposal of your king, of your lord of the captain of our salvation in this apocalyptic war. And men and women do the fighting in this one. There is no male versus female in this combat. So when you understand this, you not only come to church, you're not late for church. Late for lineup. I like that little scene in 1517 to Paris where the guy came in. He slept through, and he got up for formation, and he got torn to pieces by his commanding officer. Rightly so. But I'm a nice guy, so I don't do that. I don't have my pink shirt on tonight. I have my lavender shirt on tonight. So, two ways of saying I'm secure in my masculinity, which is not toxic. It's not killing me. Someone said yesterday, John Wayne began that whole thing of dominating women. You apparently haven't watched McClintock, where he goes toe-to-toe with Maureen O'Hara. You see who dominates who there. I think she might have knocked him down the stairs a couple times, and he knocked her down the stairs a couple times, and they just knocked each other down the stairs a couple times and fell in love. (laughs) Now, we're entering a phase of Romans. In Romans, the word is present, like present arms, paristemi. It initiates, in Romans 12.1, it initiates an apocalyptically pervasive section of Romans. Romans 12.1 to 15.13, which is the daily life of the church, is full of apocalyptic language. It's pervasive throughout. And so our daily lives are infused with this apocalyptic warfare. This is in order to affirm... When we present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, for example, it is in order to affirm that which is universally benevolent, acceptable, and the completed will of God as a forecast of the final recapitulation of all things in Christ. 
This presentation to God is also to the end that we are no longer conformed, pressed into the mold of this present evil age. But rather, we're to be transformed by the renewal of the mind to a new way of knowing. Not just a new thing to know, but a new way of knowing. A new way of thinking, a new way of intending, and a new praxis, praxis or prax, a practice or life behavior that is agreeable with the new aeon, the new aeon that has broken into the world. It has broken into the old passe aeon with the Christ event, the advent of faithfulness, the advent of Christ and his event of his death, burial, and resurrection is the same as the advent into this world of faithfulness in Galatians 3.23 and 3.25. So this act of paristemi, which is commanded twice in 6.13, twice in 6.19, once in 6.16, on the one hand, we don't present our bodies or our total being to this king or this death and sin, or the flesh. On the other hand, we do present ourselves and put ourselves at the total disposal of. It's an unconditional surrender to the one who unconditionally saved us by his grace is what it is. We make ourselves available at his disposal. It brings us into an implicit obedience. Here am I, send me. Here I am, send me. Here I am. Make me a missionary to the world of the hope of the gospel. Here I am, without reservation. This act of peristomy or presentation to God in unconditional availability to him is the outworking of the obedience of faith, and it's the activity of what Paul calls reasonable worship and service. Why does he call it reasonable in Romans 12.1? Because it's agreeable to the new aeon and the new creation. It is not agreeable to the old cosmos to which we have been crucified. It is an unconditional surrender to God's control in recognition of his unconditional grace toward us in Christ Jesus. All of the exhortations and commands of the apostle, which I take seriously because I'm under Paul's authority, who is under Christ's authority. All of the commands and exhortations of the apostle to those who are in Christ already presuppose Christ's presence in the church, as John did in Revelation. He walked among the lampstands. Everything he commands presupposes that Christ is present in you, that Christ is present in the church. And that he's present with each and every one who has been awakened to faith. I'll say it for the third time. Do not say that your faith is nothing. It's a priceless gift to you from God. It was elicited in you by the spirit of Christ and it is anything but sin. If anything, faith is anything but sin. Because anything that isn't faith is sin. So faith is the one thing that stands against what is sin in our life. Faith is anything but sin. It stands against sin's control as a regnant power. Sin can control me in anxiety and in worry and fear. Or I can believe and not fear, but only believe. As Jesus said in Mark five thirty six. very simply, do not fear, only believe. And so the believing isn't sin. The fearing is sin. Anything that is not faith is sin in that regard. So don't call your faith nothing. It's something. It stands against sin's control as a regnant power in one's life. Romans 6.13, here it is. I really am saying all that to get to this, but here's the present arms. Do not present the negative mede plus the present imperative of paristemi. Do not present 
Paristemi, your members. That's body parts. But it's in the plural, it means the sum total of your body parts, as in Romans 12.1, your body. It means the same thing. But both body parts and body in its totality are both pars pro toto, or a part for the whole. What he's saying is to present your whole being to God as a living sacrifice. Present your arms your legs, your body, your being, your spirit, your soul, your body. And then it says, present your members. Do not present them, rather, on the one hand, to sin as weapons. The word is not instruments. It's hopla, weapons. Apparently someone had hoplophobia who wrote this, their fear of weapons. It's weapons. Present your bodies. Present your arms. Present your weapons. Present yourself as a weapon. To sin as weapons of unrighteousness. Do not present yourselves to sin as weapons of unrighteousness, which are activities antagonistic to rectification. On the contrary... As those who are alive from the dead, present yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves. This time he doesn't say body. He says yourselves to God as weapons for rectitude. So this we may call present arms. Note the interchangeability here of members, body parts, literally, with yourselves, your total being. He's equating the, he uses the word present your bodies. In other words, get into line when the lineup happens in the morning. Line up. Get into rank. So then he says, present yourselves. The Greek word melee is the plural, is a synonym for soma, in the singular, in Romans 12.1, in the pincer movement. In both cases, we're dealing with a metaphor in which the part is referred to for the whole. In other words, the body parts or the bodies are simply terminology that denotes the whole of one's being by referring to a part of our being. Almost every Saturday night, I've gotten into this habit, and it's if I don't, if I don't remember it, God recalls it to me, and I simply say to God, Father, I give you all that I am. I present to you my total being for the purpose of you presenting through me your word. I give you myself unconditionally. I give you myself without condition. I give you myself totally at your disposal. Here I am. Here I am. If you don't want to use me, don't. If you do want to use me, do. If you want to... If you want to kill me, kill me. If you want to keep me alive, keep me alive. I like the second part for now. And here I am. It's an unconditional giving of myself. It's not a big thing. It's not a prayer. It takes less than a second to pray it. Because I don't even... Prayers aren't even verbalized sometimes. We think the thought comes and it goes to God. We think then we've got to say the thought out. Otherwise, God won't hear it. You waste a lot of time that way. But in both cases, we're dealing, for example, here's Jesus from the cross. What does he say? Father, into your hands, I dismiss, I commit, I entrust my spirit. What did he mean? Just his spirit? I'm keeping my body and my soul. You take my spirit. No, he's at pars for a proto. He's saying, Father, I dismiss, I commit, I entrust all that I am to you. Body, soul, spirit, all that I am to you. God says, I'll take you. Then resurrection happens. Glorification happens. Ascension, enthronement. So, same thing. There, my spirit means my whole being. So when Paul is talking about a presentation of our bodies to God or our body parts to God, he's talking about a presentation of our entire beings to God, including our bodies, to be weapons of righteousness in the present ongoing apocalyptic war 
The duration of this war is the time frame of the clashing juxtaposition of the eons until the parousia. Just in case you wanted to know when it ends. This is the idea in Romans 12.1 with the urgent exhortation by the apostle that all the saints in Rome and elsewhere, including here tonight, Present their or our bodies to God as a living sacrifice already set apart and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here? He's talking about a resurrected army. He's talking about an armed force with divinely empowered weaponry led by the captain of our salvation, Jesus our Lord. That's what he's talking about. This is an apocalyptic theme. This means war. The apocalyptic war against sin and death, against principalities and powers who once exercised lordship and controlled the allegiance of human beings. We have weapons for this warfare. We have weapons for this warfare. We know from Ephesians 6, 13 to 18, but here we are the weapons. What's a trigger without a finger to pull it? What's a bow and arrow without a strong arm to pull back and let go? Romans 6.14, here Paul does what we call a reductio ad absurdum. He reduces the charge against his gospel of it being a license to sin is one way of putting it to a point of total absurdity, stupidity, and ridiculous irrationality. Is that clear enough? Look at it. For sin will not lord it over you. That is, to command and have your allegiance, since or because you are not under law, but under grace. Here's the lead into Romans 7, where being under the law means being under sin. Not because the Sinaitic law, or the law of Sinai, which is what is being talked about in Romans 7, not because the law is sin, but because sin, being exceedingly sinful, has set up a base of operations in the Mosaic law in order to lord it over those who sincerely intend rectitude by observing the law. And this whole argument, in turn, serves to demolish the walls that segregate those who, under the influence of the legalistic, or the better described, nomistic gospel of the teacher, and who boast against their Gentile siblings in Christ, those walls come tumbling down. Because Paul says all the law does is aggravate sin's control, intensify the production of sinful acts. So you that are under the law can't boast against those, your Gentile siblings, because the only thing that keeps you from the control of sin is being under the grace that you're charging as being the license to sin. That's a reductio ad absurdum a rhetorical way of reducing the force of your opponent's argument to ridiculousness. And so here is a real power punch to the nomistic gospel and to the groundless accusation against unconditional grace. And there are many accusations, and they're all groundless. Paul makes the point here, listen carefully to this now. Romans 6.14 is pivotal. He makes the point there that sin loses its control over the saints precisely because they are under grace and precisely because they are not under obligation to observe the Sinaitic law, the law that came from Sinai. To be justified then from sin, as Jesus was in Romans 6, 7, is to be liberated from sin's control 
which is aggravated by its use of the law that it is hijacked. That's why Romans 7 is, again, Paul demolishing the walls because some people still believed that they, being in Christ, they still need to observe the law or that they observe the law and by that got into Christ or that by the observing of the law, they can produce righteousness. And Paul is showing that that doesn't wash anymore. In fact, that the very fact of being under the law is an aggravation or an intensification of sin. It's like assault is bad enough, but aggravated assault is worse. It's an intensified assault. You didn't just slap the guy on the street. You punched him until he was knocked out. That's aggravated. The law aggravates sin. I didn't know it was wrong to covet until the law said, do not covet. Now I'm coveting just about everything that walks or talks or crawls or that is put before me like a pepperoni pizza. To be justified away from sin is to be liberated from sin's control, which is only aggravated by its use of the law. Remember the helpful Latin saying in closing, corruptio optimi pessima. The worst evil consists in the corruption of the highest good. Paul says, with my spirit, speaking of the person who really wants, his intentions are so pure and good, they're of the highest kind. He intends to obey the law. My intention, my spirit, with my spirit, I obey the law, but with my flesh, forget about it. Jesus said it this way. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is utterly weak, totally strengthless. And so, thank God for the advent of the spirit. The worst evil consists in the corruption of the highest aspirations in mankind. That's why I don't like movies that always praise the triumph of the human spirit. Because the triumph of the human spirit is corruptible. It's only the triumph of Jesus Christ and grace that's incorruptible. Give me a movie about that. Oh, there's only one. It's about Jesus dying, being buried, and raised from the dead. That's the one. To be justified, therefore, is to be brought under a different controlling allegiance. So in closing, let's look at 6.15. We're not going to be here tomorrow night, so I'll go a few minutes extra. Based on this, what do we deduce what do we infer what do we conclude should we sin that means continue in allegiance to sin as a cosmic power because we're not under law but under grace should we sin because we're not under law but under grace where he just said in verse 14 you, sin doesn't lord it over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. Sin doesn't lord it over you because you're not under grace. So here's the absurdity. Based on this, should we continue in sin because we're under grace? I just said you're under grace, so you, sin won't have it lordship over you any longer. So should we continue? You almost see the bobblehead here. Well, then should we con- continue to sin because we're under grace? Paul says... Here it is again. Meganoito. Hell no. He had just said that sin no longer has control over us because, all caps, not Washington caps either, because we are under grace. Sin no longer lords it over us because we are under grace. So listen how stupid it sounds now. Someone says, yeah, well, that grace is a license to sin. Okay, wait a minute. Let me think. Because we are under grace, sin no longer controls us. But you're saying grace is a license to sin. Can I say it politely? You're the damn stupidest person I have ever met in my life. But I won't say that. See, I don't say that. God precludes me from being anything but gentle with people. But given that truth, do we continue in sin because we're under grace? The meganoito here is a shouting declaration that such a conclusion is utterly absurd. It's called reductio ad absurdum. The, my favorite dictionary, AHCD5, the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, it means disproof 
of a proposition by showing that it leads to absurd or untenable conclusions. And that's what Paul's done with the accusation that his gospel is saying we should go out and do evil or continue in sin, that good may come or that grace might increase. He's defending the gospel, the unchained gospel. So the reproachful proposition that Paul's gospel of unconditional grace issues a license to sin, like MI6 issues James Bond a license to kill, leads to an indefensible conclusion. The apostle has reduced the charge that his gospel issues a license to sin to being a ludicrous, if not blasphemous, irrationality. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You have asked us tonight. You have urged us tonight. In fact, you've commanded us tonight to present arms and that we are in an apocalyptic war that the church is a time to be briefed for how to conduct ourselves in the house of God because indisputably and universally to be acknowledged is this mystery that God who is manifest in the flesh was justified by the spirit proclaimed among the Gentiles believed on by the world having been taken up in glory, seen by messengers, seen by angels. Thank you, Father, that we are in the one who died because when he died, we died. That we are in the one who was justified because when he was justified, we were justified. And that we are in the one who rose because when he rose from the dead, we arose with him. There is no difference between us and the so-called unbeliever except for the fact that you have awakened us to the faith that this has occurred. We thank you for that. 